Hi, this is Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. In this episode, I'm talking with Thomas Coretti, who's a former Fortune 500 CEO and author of the book C-Suite and Beyond. Unlock your potential with the four keys to leadership success. Thomas is a great believer in sharing ideas and in this interview, he shares these four key areas with us. Now, they were developed out of his own experience and through observing what worked and what didn't work for him. But when he applied his principles to uh, other major firms, he realised it wasn't unique to him and could be applied to all of us. In addition, we also explore such topics as the difference between authority and leadership, why you should treat business and family in a similar way, and the importance of recognising that what you do is not who you are. Plus, he picks out the three key questions that every leader should be able to answer. Before we jump into the interview, if not already done so, please have a listen to my TEDx talk. If you go to my website, businessenjoyment.com, a pop-up will appear giving you direct access. This talk sets out my ethos that life and business is about so much more than just money and shows you how you can be successful and happy at the same time. So do check that out, but for now, sit back, relax, think about which part of your world you can share, and most of all, enjoy. Well, I'm a, I'm a leadership guy, and uh, I say all the time, if, if you want to be a leader, you should be able to answer these three questions, and I answer these three questions for myself. Uh, you know, the first question is, is uh, who are you? And uh, I'm a servant leader. That defines everything that I do. It's about servanthood. Is it about leadership? And then the second question is, you know, what are you passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about making things better, making people better, making companies, organizations better, making products better. Uh, some people saying, you know, add, I add value to people, I add value to processes. Um, adding value is becoming a little bit of a buzzword, so I don't like to use it that much anymore. And then the third question is, what are you good at? Um, I'm pretty good at mentoring and leading people. So why is that important? Well, it's important because, look, uh, in leadership, uh, we are people and, and, you know, people follow leaders. If you don't know who you are, if you, you're unsure of your character, people are not going to follow you because they're not going to buy into you. You know, mm -hmm. they, they really don't know who you are. So why, why would they follow you? Uh, then the second question is, you know, what are you passionate about? Well, look, if, if you're not passionate about something, how do you expect somebody that's uh, that you're leading to be passionate about it. You know, if you if you're not passionate about it, then they're not going to be passionate about it. Um, and then if if you're not good at something, then people are not going to buy buy into you because you just don't have the confidence. So to me, those three questions really kind of determine the success of a leader because they're sure of who they are, they're passionate about what they're doing, and they're actually good at it. And and unfortunately, I know a lot of people. Who are not passionate about what they do and you know, they just go to work and punch the clock and they don't want to be there and people see that they don't want to be there or they're not happy about it or about the situation and you know there are some people in positions that are incompetent and yet they're in those positions uh so people don't follow them because because they're just not competent they don't believe in it so you know that's what i say to all of everybody that's who i am you know i'm a i'm a servant leader uh it's not about me it's about something much bigger than me uh, I'm passionate about whatever I do and uh, at least two things in life I'm good at so <laughs> that's beautiful so I just uh, cut interest with the three questions that you've just said there because you 
attach that very much to to leadership but it, for me those questions feel quite broader than that that they can be used in a, in a range of situations that are just applied to leadership well, how, how do you see those three questions in themselves are they are they specifically in the leadership space or do you see it as a broader no look it's it's you're 100 correct and and the reason i love it so much is because you can use it anywhere in life uh, you know some some people um and, and i i think somebody actually told me this and i totally disagreed with them they said look you know you have to behave one way at work and you have to behave another way somewhere else. And I said, that's just, that's a schizophrenic, you know, approach to life because, you know, depending on the situation where you are, what you're doing, you have to reinvent yourself every time. That's just nuts. So with the formula that I use, um, it, it works anywhere, right? I, it can work in my family life. It works in at work. It works at church. It works, you know, on the tennis team, you know, it doesn't matter where I am in life. It works because look, you know, I can, I could be a mentor to my employees and I could also be a mentor to my kids. Mm. I can serve my family or I can serve at church or I can serve my customers. I, I can, you know, I, I can, um, uh, I'm passionate about adding value to my customers or I can, you know, be passionate about creating a new product that makes, you know, cu customers life easier or consumers life easier. So I, I can use that formula at work or I can use that formula at play I can use that formula at, uh, in, in my family. So that's the beauty of it. I don't have to reinvent myself every time. And, and by the way, when, you know, when I was a little bit arrogant in my early 20s and 30s, I, I did have, quote unquote, different hats that I wore, different personalities at work. Because at work, I thought I had to be extremely, extremely professional. And then you know, on weekends, I was like, you know, a gangbuster, you know, a crazy maniac that was totally unprofessional, to, you know, just like, putting up a storm. So, you know, there's, there's a balance. I mean, yeah, you know, th there is certain behaviors that you can do maybe in your private life, you can do at work, but for God's sakes, don't try to reinvent yourself wherever you are. Cause that just becomes, it, it becomes confusing how to keep track of it. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, what, what role am I playing right now? Let me get into that role. It is, it just gets confusing. So you stick to one role. Life is a lot easier. Yeah, as uh, some people say, stop trying to be somebody that you aren't. It's hard enough being yourself, so <laughs> <laughs> don't try and be another person. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the, the leadership thing is obviously an area I'd like to dig into a little bit more, but um, to get there, I think we need to find out how you've come through it. So I, I want to hear more about the uh, your arrogant stages or even before that, what, uh, what, what, brought, what journey did you come through to become a... Uh, the servant leader that you are well life humbles you right um when you're in your 20s and you know you're in a rocket ship and life is is great um you know you kind of become arrogant um you know i i always had good people skills so early on my career i found it uh fairly easy to uh, maybe manipulate is not the right word but you know it was finally fairly easy to get things uh to go in my favor um, by just using my people skills. I mean, where were, where, what were you looking to do? What was your, were you, did, were you following a normal sort of education route into a career sort of process or were you a little bit more? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, obviously I graduated from college and then, you know, I would say the first uh, 15 years I was on a rocket ship on, on a career. I worked for one company about every two, every three years I was being promoted to, you know, something bigger, something better, something higher. Um, until, you know, my whole world came crashing down after about 15 or 16 years, right? Um, but during those first 15 years, um, 
the, you know, one of the reasons I was getting promoted every two or three years is because I was excelling. Uh, and I was excelling really in people skills. I, during those 15 years, I went from uh, a technical engineering job to uh, a uh, IT job, to a finance job, to a marketing job, to a sales job. Um, and not because I was a great finance guy, not because I was a great marketeer, uh, simply because of, of my character, of who I was and, and le leadership skills. So people kind of believe me that Tom can get that job done. And Tom mm -hmm. was getting that job done. Because moving into those different departments is a really useful skill to be able to get those different elements within a, a business. Was that sort of deliberate on your part or just you were just moved around because of your ability to step into any space and work with the people rather than the. Well, I think it's it's again, it's it's people get promoted because of their uh, because their people skills more than they get promoted because of their technical skills. Right. I mean, you know, you may be a great accountant and you get promoted from, you know, a cost accountant to a, you know, a controller, assistant controller, and a control, but you kind of have a career path in accountancy. Um, and then you may reach your level of competence where you are all of a sudden in charge of leading a large organization uh, and you fail because you're a very good accountant, but you don't exactly have really good people skills, right? Uh, as opposed to me, where I was more generalist, I, I wasn't really an expert in any, any particular field, but I had great people skills. So I was able to really go into any situation, access the situation and then make that successful based on people skills rather than, you know, competencies of accounting or marketing or, you know, I had a great, I had a lot of people who were great marketeers that worked for me, but, you know, I didn't have, I, was, I wasn't a, myself a great marketeer, but, you know, putting that marketing team together and have them excel and be successful uh, is a different skill set than, coming up with the next creative concept. You know, you may be a great creative person, come out with a great creative concept, but you're not really good at getting that implemented through a team because you lack those people skills. Right? So that's kind of what worked for me. And as I learn, as you grow, I mean, look, you know, as the old saying is, if, if, if experience you don't learn from it, then it's just stuff that happens to you, right? Uh, so really what happened with me is, is I went through uh, life and I, I, I grew in responsibilities at the workforce and also, you know, I started having kids and, you know, marriage, you, you kind of learn in life. Um, and you kind of learn that um, if you're always a taker and you're manipulating people that may have short-term gains, um, but it may not, um, you know, have long lasting uh, relationship partnerships that you can form, you know, people kind of buy into you. And if you burn them once you burn them twice, they say, okay, I've learned my lesson. Right. Um, so that was one of the learnings that I had as I got more mature and got, you know, in life and, and in my careers to say, look, you know, it's not about me. It's about something much bigger than me. And, and, and were, you, were you learning that by making those mistakes and, as you say, manipulating people and getting burnt as a consequence? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, OK, you stick your hand in the fire, you're burning, you go, oh, that was hot. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> that, that wasn't fun, right? Um, and and I was always so blessed to have, a, you know, during the course of my career, uh, there was probably three people that I deeply respected. One of my problems actually was uh, as I was going through, you know, my career and, and getting higher and higher uh, responsibilities is, you know, sometimes I would look at people and say, why am I working for them? They should be working for me. So I had, um, I guess, a problem with, uh, with authority. 
right? Uh, but then during my career, I had uh, one guy that uh, I deeply respect. His name was Dr. Frank Morelli. He was uh, one of my bosses at my first company. I, I think it was like job number four or job number five. So I was with the company almost 10 years when I started working for Frank. And, and he was just a, he was the first servant. I, I didn't know what servant leadership was at the time, but he was the first servant leader that I, that I ever met. And it was just a really fantastic guy to work for. And, you know, it's one of those guys where, okay, if he asked you to do anything, you would do it. Not because, you know, just, you, you believed in the guy, you believed that he asked you to do something. You, there was a reason for it. And, and you would do any sacrifice because you bought into the guy. Mm-hmm. So that, that really, you know, that was a lesson for me. And, you know, I was, I was a guy that didn't grow up with a dad. My mother and my father were divorced at a very young age. So I didn't have a lot of male role models. So, so the way I grew up is I kind of looked at male figures and whether it was personally somebody I knew or maybe somebody that was just famous that I kind of, you know, watched the media and, and I tried to learn from them. Uh, and then Frank was one of those guys where I said, okay, well, I really like what he's doing as a father, as a husband, as a business leader, I, I really should learn a lot from him. And, mm-hmm. and I did. I think it's something you said there, which is, is a distinction I've not really thought about before, but um, I'll raise it and then we'll see where the conversation goes. But that difference between authority and leadership, because they can get overlapped at times. You've, you've made a, or alluded to a clear distinction between the two. I have a trouble with authority, but servant leadership was what you were seeking and leading to. So, so, how do you well certainly at that point would you you had a distinction anyway how at that point would you perceive the difference between authority and leadership and you might have a different view of it now but at that time well look you know uh for example <laughs> let's take it at the highest level and um you know f- forget whether you hated trump or you liked trump or you hated biden or you or like biden right you, you basically say look you know the the oval office is the most prestigious office in the united states Right. And then we elect the guy to be in there. Um, and then, you know, during Trump's era, half, half the people bought into him of the country and the other half thought it was a total idiot. Right. So now Biden is the president. And, you know, now you have the different half or, or maybe a little bit more than half that thinks the guy is an idiot. And, the, and some people actually thinks he's, you know, think is good. But so you can put a person in the office. OK, you got to respect the office because it is the Oval Office is the most prestigious office in, in the United States, if not the world. Right. But the guy who occupies the office, you may think is a total baboon or you may think is he's, he's a savior. Right. So and that's really how, how life is. Uh, you know, people buy into you. They don't buy into you. One of the stories I, I share once in a while is uh, when I was a dad and, and I had three daughters and you know, my, my, my wife was more the disciplinarian. I was the softy. So, you know, the kids got away with a lot with me, but, you know, every once in a while they would get under my thumb and I was like, all right, that's it. Time out. You know? And so what does that mean? Well, with dad, when he said time out, okay, you gotta, you know, get your toes to touch the wall and your nose to touch the wall. And you have to stand there for about two, three minutes, you know, for time out. And, you know, my oldest daughter did it uh, one time when she did something crazy that ticked me off. And then my middle daughter did it. And then, you know, then my youngest daughter, right? So my youngest daughter said, all right, time out. And, and uh, she's like, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. So, you know, I tried that two or three times. And then I forcefully kind of nudged her against the wall with his toes. And so now she's physically, you know, rebelling, squiggling. Now she said, this is crazy. I'm not doing this. 
So, so after about two minutes, you know, Kathy and I, we, we just started laughing. I, you know, I kind of gave up. So I was like, so I'm not getting anywhere, right? And then, um, and then my other two, two daughters are, you know, looking at the whole situation and they kind of look at each other and go, man, how stupid were we to do this? You know, I mean, you know, we did it like a bait and that was dumb because, you know, Alex is not doing it. And that's pretty much what life is like. You know, you go, you work into a work situation and, and, and somebody doesn't buy into you, right? Somebody, you know, you have the authority. I was the dad, I had the authority, but, you know, obviously I wasn't able to influence the youngest one that, you know, they should do what I asked them to do. So, you know, if you're at, in a work situation, um, you, you may have somebody who says, you know, I, I don't buy into Tom. I makes no sense what he's saying. I'm, I'm not doing that. And then, you know, the, the colleagues and our coworkers are staying around and said, well, what the heck, they got away with it. We didn't think, you know, I mean, we did it because the boss told us to do it, but we weren't really 100% on board. We just did it because, you know, I thought he had the authority to ask us to do it. So they didn't have their heart in it. They didn't buy into it. And, um, you know, and, you know, if one person sees the other person saying, well, you know, it makes no sense. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not like my, my other two daughters said, Alex, you really should do this because this is really good for you. I mean, you know, <laughs> so it wasn't like a team effort where the other, other girls said, yeah, 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 this is, this is great, do it. So the same thing with work situation, you know, people may be doing something because they were asked to do or they were forced to do it and they didn't have their heart into it. So that's, a, that's kind of a, an easy, you know, uh, lesson from, from parenting that you can take off to, to work place to sell unless people buy into you unless they buy into the vision unless they buy into whatever you're doing together and they see their place in it um you know they may be just going through the you know the steps the acts but it's it's a futile effort yeah no that's that's uh, that's really good so the, the as you say the, the the authority and leadership can be the same thing but as they stand authority is essentially the the powers that have been given to you and then leadership is the powers that you've earned yeah, uh, and the respect and the trust and all the stuff that goes with that. Um, so you can have leadership in authority, but it's not um, automatic. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that was really useful. Thank you. Um, so you alluded earlier on that you, about 15 years you were working in this, and then you said came the crash. <laughs> so what 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 are you alluding to there? Well, my my advice to everybody, and, and this is you know something that I didn't realize until this happened was. Um, uh, what you do is not who you are. Mm, right? um, and, and that it took really basically 15 years for me to figure that out. Yeah. And, uh, and because, it's, it's a societal condition, isn't it? I talk about it a few times, but you know, when you, you go to somebody's party, is what do you do? And I am a doctor, I am an accountant. And this exactly. confusion between what you do and who you are is absolutely rife through everything we do. So it's a common misconception people run with. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so you know that that's what happened with me. I mean, I was kind of caught up in my career. I was, you know, by that time I was a father of two, and um, actually father of three by that time, and uh, you know, I was married for uh, you know a number of years. And but you know, my daughter at one time said to me, she was probably about fourteen years old or something like that, and and she said, uh, you know, Dad, I haven't seen you half my life. And, and that was just such a truth that kind of made me realize that maybe I got my priorities, you know, kind of mixed up um, in, in putting too many eggs in the basket of my career around work. 
and again it was you know yeah it part of part of that was servant leadership uh, at work but maybe it wasn't servant leadership at home um mm. So, you know, it, it was, um, and look, I, I love being a leadership position. I still love being a leadership position. So to a certain extent, there was also a little bit of selfish ambition. Um, but, you know, 15 years of, of uh, business trips and long hours and everything else that, you know, there was a lot of sacrifice there. And, you know, that's, that's who I thought I was. I thought I was a successful business guy. And then, you know, I got canned one day. And uh, after 15 years of having a very successful career with one company, again, getting promoted every two or three years. Um, and, and the lesson, by the way, from, from that was, again, uh, there was a situation where I was working for somebody I didn't think I should be working for. In fact, I should have been promoted in that job, in my opinion, instead of bringing somebody else in. Um, and um, I, I didn't rebel, but um, I, I didn't blindly follow, which... Uh, and John Maxwell talks about this, you know, you're the leadership lid. So if, if, um, if you have a leadership lid, which is, let's say, between a, a five and a 10, let's say 10 is a maximum, you're at a five. And, um, you know, you, you're working for a three, then you got a problem. Yeah. Right. If you're a five, you can easily work for a seven. But that was kind of the, the, my issue where I was working for this new guy that I brought in as a general manager. And he was a pretty good sales guy, but he was just an awful leader. Yeah. Right? He couldn't get people to buy into anything. So I had difficulty working for him. So he, I think, realized that as long as both of us were there, people were following me and they were not following him. So he made a decision that, you know, to can me and all right, it is what it is. But, you know, after 15 years, I, I kind of learned one thing. One is, you know, what I do is not who I am because I was kind of dev devastated. It's like going through a divorce after 15 years. Um, that, that's all you knew. Uh, and then it took probably about two, two weeks or three weeks of like total confusion and what's going to happen to my life. I was just a mess for about two, three weeks. And then I kind of finally realized, okay, it's, it's just what I did. It's not who I am. I'm still a dad. I'm still a husband. I still have the same skill sets. You know, the guy didn't appreciate him. So you know, too bad for him. By the way, the following year he got fired. So, <laughs> <laughs> so people realize people realize that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. Yeah. They didn't ask uh, you back, did they? <laughs> <laughs> well, by that time, you know, it, it, and it took maybe another three or four weeks until I got a great job. Yeah. So just right. to pause you there, sorry, because it's yeah, I think it's an important thing. So that that two to three weeks when you're in turmoil and 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 ultimately going through the soul searching to get to the point where you realize that the the separation between between you know um who you are and what you do um I, i've seen other people go through similar sort of things and they've taken a lot longer to get through it than you have two to three weeks i'm going to say is actually pretty good well done sir um how did you do that shall we say is it just was it just sitting with it and, and using your own internal strengths we get seeking support from other places to sort of learn from that what was your mechanism for working through these sort of things well i'm i'm uh, you know if uh, there's a number of studies out there there's, you know there's Myers and briggs and lsi and strength finders and and disc and you know all all these uh personality uh, assessments will put you into buckets of what kind of individual you are. Uh, so for example, if you use this, I'm a high DI, right? So what does that mean? If I'm a Myers and Briggs, I'm a, I think uh, ESTJ or something like that. So, so I'm very action oriented. I'm very, you know, 
outspoken. So, so actually, you know, like two, three weeks, I said, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, you're sitting around, you're moping, do something about it. <laughs> and uh, so it really took about two or three weeks just to say, okay, well, sitting here and feeling sorry for yourself is not going to fix it. Right. So, um, you know, I started talking to people. It was the first time that I said, like, what do you do? Well, uh, our first reaction is, or, you know, my first reaction, apparently it's a common one is to, you know, is the reaction of shame. So, you know, you kind of say you want to kind of, dig a hole, hide in it. And, um, and, you know, just like, okay, I don't want anybody to know because I'm, I'm ashamed of what happened. Right. And then it's, it's exactly the opposite is what you should do. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. You should let as many people as you know, that you're out there looking, right. Cause the, the bigger your network, the more people that care about it, it's, it's always, it's not answering about an ad. It's, it's really just somebody knowing that you're available. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so then I, you know, kind of went into, you know, again, some advice and said, okay, well, how do you market yourself? And that, that's where I came up with this idea that each individual, um, and I don't know if it was my idea, or I just put two and two together, but each individual should think of themselves as a brand and you market yourself as a brand. I mean, you know, I worked for branded products uh, 15 years. So I knew something about sales. I knew something about marketing. I knew something about brand equity. And I kind of just looked at myself as, okay, well, what's my brand equity? What am I about? You know, what, what do I have to offer? So I marketed myself as, um, and, and when I looked at myself, I go, what was I good at? I was good at turning things around. I was good at starting things up, right? So then I became a turnaround specialist or a startup specialist in emerging markets, right? I kind of, and, and I wasn't looking for a, a specific job. I was, you know, I, I was looking uh, in markets for certain type of industries that needed a turnaround specialist or a startup specialist, because that's what I was good at. Uh, but that, you know, that trigger uh, of, of getting canned made me look at myself and, and kind of ask those questions. Well, who are you? What are you good at? And what are you passionate about? Um, back in those days, I don't think I knew those three questions and answered them that way. But you know, what it boils down to, it still boils down to those three questions, because then if you have the answers, then you can begin to market yourself. You know, what is your brand equity? Mm. What are you good at? What are you passionate about? So then it helped me market myself. And, you know, then I became, quote unquote, a turnaround specialist in emerging markets for the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, mm. and I was I was a sought after commodity. Mm. And just to just to sort of just go to that period again and just check what was the timing an order between your daughter making that comment to you about I've not seen you half, half my life and being canned. What was the timing and order? But the timing between what? The, your daughter making that comment to you about not seeing you as she ah, grew up and you. Um, I, no, I, I didn't think the two were that that related. So I, I didn't think it was like an immediate, like you know, within a week or, or, or two weeks, I think. Those were two independent, um, you know, um, two independent happenings. But um, it, it's it's something that um, you know just stuck to me for for a very long time because um, it, it's it's not just about who I was, but also what was I spending my time mm. on. And um, but 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 she said she it was her comment come first, and then you got canned. Um, no no no, I think her comment came you know much later. Right. Okay. Uh, much yeah. uh, her, her comment came probably about uh, I think she said that to me when we were living in Mexico already. So um, that was um, much, much later. It was probably about 
maybe six, seven years later. Mm. Um, but what's, uh, what, what's interesting about her comment is, is the other thing that I talk about. Uh, and a lot of these things that I'm sharing with you are really stories from, from my book. And, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is, look, I don't care if you're a, a $5 billion organization, a $1 billion organization, a $100 million organization, a $1 million organization, a $100,000 organization, right? Or just a family. Um, you should make yourself a grid um, and, and really decide how you're spending your time and how you're spending your money, right? So if you go into a, a billion dollar organization and you're looking at their you know, budgeting and planning process, it boils down to the same two questions. How are you guys spending your money and how are you spending your time? How you spending your time really says, okay, what are your employees doing, right? What projects are they working on? What initiatives they're working on? And then how do you spend your money is, is really how you spend your money outside the company. So, you know, how you spending your money on, maybe if you don't have an R&D development, you know, maybe buying R&D outside, maybe buy marketing outside, media outside. So, you know, how are you spending your money outside the organization? And, and the same thing with the family, you know, what are you spending your time on and what are you spending your money on? And, you know, there's four quadrants that uh, you should put these things into, right? The first quadrant, what's important and urgent, uh, what's not urgent but important what's not important but urgent and the fourth one is not urgent and not important so you know when when people try to sell you time management courses tell them they're full of you know what because there's no such thing as time management there's only priority management right yeah. it's what you do with your time what you do with your money is your priority so look we can't help it but you know probably about 60 maybe even 65 percent of our time we are occupied with things that are important important that and urgent right my my career was important and it was urgent because it, it was a very you know healthy salary it, it gave me uh, an opportunity to to provide a lifestyle for my family uh, because of that you know the income and and i spent a lot of time with it because it was important it was an urgent right and then you know equally important but not urgent was my kids growing up right so all of a sudden you know i get this comment from one of my kids and and it says well, okay, I, I better reprioritize my life because, you know, obviously the, the health and the wellness of, of my daughter is not just about financial stability, you know, uh, it, it's about me, you know, kids care more about their parents than they do about, you know, whether they have another video game or the TV. I mean, time spent with your kids is, is, is great time spent, right? And then you know, a lot of us spend time on stuff that's urgent, but not important. So what does that mean? Oh, well, it means that it's urgent to important to somebody else and they're pressing for you, but it's really maybe not that important to you. Um, and then the last one, obviously, is not urgent, not important. Well, if it's not urgent, not important, then we shouldn't spend any time on it, right? Uh, but the trick to life is to, to take stuff from the bucket, which is, you know, urgent, but not important, and reallocate that time to stuff that's important, but not urgent. Uh, if you could do that, because you, you can't help the 60% of stuff that's urgent and, not, uh, urgent and important, mm. but stop doing stuff for other people that's not really not important to you or your family or, or, or your organization, right? Uh, spend that time, spend that money on, on things about the future. So, you know, for example, my book, right? Um, it took me a while to write the book and it, it really wasn't urgent. It was important to me, but it wasn't urgent. I mean, I could even go through on the whole life without writing the book. I, I didn't have to write a book and, you know, get six foot under. It's, 
uh, and I didn't have to write it, you know, one day. I could have been, I could have waited another five years, another 10 years, who knows, right? But one day I said, okay, I got to stop wasting time on stuff and, and dedicate to the book. Because to me, that's important. So what, 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 why, what was it that made you say, I want to write a book and, and, and give it that sense of importance? Where did that thought come from? Um, that's a damn good question. I don't know. I just, I just, you know, I know how I ended up up with the book, but, I, you know, I don't know. So one of the things that we talked about uh, when we first, uh, you and I started talking about it was TED Talks, right? And I said, okay, well, I didn't do TED Talks because I, I got this thing, you know, John Maxwell organization and they teach us how to public speak and how to get on stage. And, and one of the things that they tell you is, is to say, look, build a database of personal stories, right? You, if you look at, you know, John Maxwell or any really great public speaker um, and you analyze their um, speeches and, and John, I think has done more than 14,000 speeches or something. So it's, it's kind of incredible, but you analyze all of John's speeches uh, less than 10% is what he calls teachings. You know, John is very good at, you know, the laws. Uh, and then if you read John's books, so you see him on stage, he has just tons of personal stories illustrating those laws, right? So if you look at John's public speaking, you know, he has about 65% of his uh, time is spent on personal stories. Uh, about 20% of the time is spent on using other people's stories to illustrate. Right? And, and then maybe about 10% is, 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 you know, those laws or those points or principles that he's trying to demonstrate and it demonstrates in through personal stories. So that's what they teach you uh, just to start building a whole bunch of personal stories. So I, I started doing that a number of years ago. And then after a while, I looked at these stories and said, man, I got enough stories to write a book. <laughs> so then I said, okay, well, how do I, you know, what do I do with these stories for somebody to actually, you know, read the book? How do I make it interesting enough? One of the things that, you know, John also says, before you start writing a book, you know, understand why the person wants to page, you know, turn the page and, and continue reading the book. So I said, okay, well, they're kind of interesting stories, how to put a framework around it. And then I started examining the stories. I said, well, okay, well, in this story, you know, my life was, you know, firing all cylinders. I was doing pretty well and and these couple of stories i was doing shitty i was like all right well so i came up with these um uh buckets you know i said okay well you know i was successful in this one not successful you know, so on and so forth and i said okay well what made me successful and when what was missing when i wasn't successful i came up with these four principles which i talk about in the book which the uh, the four keys to leadership success and and those four keys were always present when I was doing well and one or more of the keys were missing when I was not doing well. Uh, then I said, okay, is it me or is, is, you know, so I looked at some other leaders, uh, some leading companies and I said, well, yeah, actually the successful ones all share that. So that's kind of became the frame for the, you know, framework for the book, the four keys to leadership success. I called it C-suite beyond because I spent a lot of time in C-suite. Then I got out of corporations and, started my own companies and, you know, now, you know, kind of on my tail end of my life, I'm at 65 and, you know, still active and, you know, part owner in, in two different businesses. But uh, so I call the C-suite and beyond. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's uh, kind of 
went off on a tangent. I forgot how we got there. But <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, just because you mentioned the book sort of thing, and I'll come back to John Maxwell in a minute, but um, are, you, are, you, are you happy to share what the four keys are? Or do we need to buy the book? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you don't you don't have to read the book. You actually can go to my website and download it. So there's uh, it's not the whole book, but it's a, like sort of a, a summary about I think it's about maybe 50, 60 pages, which is the, the summary. And then, you know, the whole book is a couple of hundred pages. So um, but the four keys are uh, simply uh, the first key is um, uh, which should not be a surprise after you and I talked for a while, but but really understanding who you are, what is your character, right? So if, if you're sure of yourself, if you understand who you are, what you're about, um, you know, then then you can begin to lead others. And the uh, the corporate equivalent of that is is called a corporate culture. Corporate culture is really the DNA of an organization, and it defines who they are, just like a character of an individual defines who they are. Right. And then, um, and by the way, just as a side note on that, um, there's a thing that's called reputation, right? So you have a character and you have a reputation. And in an ideal world, those two line up. Uh, but many times people's reputation actually don't match what they think their character is uh, because they're not behaving like people are expecting them to behave. Um, same thing with companies. You know, you may have a corporate culture, but you're not living that corporate culture and and then sooner or later that shows up in your product offering it shows up in your employee morale and all that stuff so that's the first key character and culture and then the second key is a vision you know i, I wish somebody you know at, at the age of 21 came to me and said tom what's the vision for your life <laughs> you know, I, I don't think i could it could have even comprehended that question at that time yeah. right but uh look vision is not about something a year from now, five years from now, you know, I asked somebody that question. So what's your vision? They said, well, it's my vision is to own a house in five years. I said, well, that's a nice plan. You know, that's a nice objective, but it's not a vision, right? Uh, the vision for my life is man of God, leader of men. Right? Uh, so the nice thing about a vision statement is, is it helps you make choices, right? It, it, throughout life, we go through at times where we have to make a choice to do one thing or to do something else. And if you have a solid vision statement that's easy enough for you to understand, then you can answer those questions, right? So every time I come to a crossroad, I got to answer a question to say, do I do this or do I not do this? I just put it against that vision statement. Does it honor God? Is it a leadership role? If it's not a leadership role, I probably don't take it. If it doesn't honor God, I probably don't do it. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I was awarded, you know, I was a turnaround specialist and uh, cigarette companies and liquor companies in merger markets, I had like 10 job offers. <laughs> right? I, I never took it because I said, okay, I just consciously can't run a cigarette or liquor company. Yeah. Right? I love wine. I drink wine, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my problem. I don't want to. End up... <laughs> I don't, don't I use don't want... the problem around there. Uh, choice, choice. <laughs> so, have a great vision. And then the other one I, you know, we, you and I already talked about is uh, strategic growth, right? We all want to, you know, we all want to grow. I mean, a strategic plan, everybody has it, but it should be a good one as a growth plan. And we talked about the four quadrants of setting priorities of money and, and time, right? And then the, the, the fourth one is really putting together a team, which, you know, who's in your inner circle, 
and make sure you have uh, a very diverse team. I'm very big on diversity, uh, but I'm big on diversity of thought. Right? I, I have a very definition of diversity than you, you read in the news, you know, about, you know, Black Lives Matter and this and that. I mean, those are important, but that's not diversity of thought. Uh, diversity of thought is getting people in a room together to think differently. Now, obviously, uh, people with different skin color may think a little bit differently. You know, a guy from Brazil is going to look at the world and think a little differently than a guy from Germany. And that's, that's you know, kind of factored into the equation. But it's really diversity of thought. You know, back in, I want to say it was probably about 2002, maybe 2003, uh, I was part of the uh, Wharton Fellows Group. And we did a trip to uh, Seattle to talk to Microsoft, uh, Starbucks, and Costco. And, uh, you know, Costco and, and Microsoft, you know, they had some, you know, higher ups, actually Costco. Um, at that time, I forget who the gentleman's name was, but it was the old guy that found the Costco. He actually talked to us, very, very bright guy. Um, but he was kind of presenting to us. Same thing with Microsoft and Starbucks we went into. And, and Starbucks at that time was uh, starting to try to expand internationally. They were very big in the U.S. They were kind of saturated in the U.S. Um, and they were looking through international expansion. So they had a bunch of, you know, Wharton executive fellows in there. So they said, oh, well, you know, we picked their brain. You know, what, you know, what did they say? Um, and, um, you know, they split us into the groups. And I, I was the spokesperson for our group. I think there was probably about six groups or seven groups of five or six individuals. And I said something very simple. And, and Oren Smith, who was the CEO at the time, he kind of scratched his head and looked at me like, holy shit. <laughs> but... <laughs> But basically, it was a very simple concept. I, I looked at their executive portfolio, and and every person uh, was a white Anglo-Saxon guy from North America. Yeah. Right. So I said, "Look, if you guys want to go international, you got to have some international. Better get some. You better get some international names on, <laughs> on your executive team, right? You, you better get some German-sounding names, some Italian-sounding names, some you know Latin-sounding names, because." because you know, as a North American mindset, you're going to have a tough time going international. Yeah. And it was just that that thought of, you know, diversity of thought, right? Uh, so if you get diversity of thought in a room, then I think you have uh, one of the formulas for, for success. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so those are the four keys. Yeah. No, no, that, that, uh, that will make sense. And, um, and again, that, you know, that just touching that diversity of thought, I think it's a, such an important thing because... You know, we, we go through life trying to get good at what we do and then we become proud of what we're good at and then we end up defending what we're good at <laughs> when that's just a way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be the way. And yeah, it's and when I uh, and, and again, I, I have to you know, kind of circle back to my my first uh, great mentor, Frank. And Frank was the first guy that uh, put me through a Myers and Briggs test. Right. So. I take this Myers and Briggs test and they kind of explained to me that, uh, okay, these people view problems differently, problem solving differently. They, you know, they analyze and process information differently. And then at that time, finally, in my mid twenties, the light went on. And I was like, mm -hmm. all right, well, that guy who I thought was a procrastinator, I thought it was really dumb shit was not really dumb shit procrastinated. They were just needed more data points. You know, they were, an, they were an analytical brain. You know, I was like, all right, let's go do it. You know, like, okay, it's, it's clear. Let's just get into action. Let's implement, you know, and, you know, 
if we have to launch that product January 1st, then, you know, January 1st is not a movable date. You know, we got to do it and let's do everything possible to make that happen by January 1st. And, you know, the analytical guys were like, say, you kind of guy, he's like crazy. I don't think you're ready to launch this product January 1st because it may fail. So let's do a little bit more analysis, right? And I had no time for them because I thought they were total procrastinators and, and you know, wing nuts. And then, you know, you have the other kind of individual who looks at the big picture. They're like, okay, they have like zero interest in implementing something. They're the, they're the big, big picture, big idea guys. You know? So maybe they were the guys that first came out with what product we should launch and they're already on to the next big idea. You know, they, they have zero. So I, you know, you know, those I call the wing nuts, you know, they're out there in, you know, left field. And, and then you got the, the, the other guys I call the tree huggers, right? And, and the tree huggers were really interested in to say, okay, well, if we launch this product, what is it going to do to the environment? What's going to happen to the local community? You know, are people's feelings going to get hurt? Are they going to be happy? And they're like, would you get over it? Let's just, <laughs> let's just launch, launch the product. Well, what do you guys, but you know, that was before I understood that, that people process information differently and people think differently. So um, once I understood that, then when I would go into the room, I would have a lot more patience and a lot more appreciation for their points of view. And, and one of the things that leaders or, or bad leaders have a habit of doing is surrounding themselves with like-minded individuals. So, you know, I'm an action-oriented guy. So let me just surround myself with all, you know, guys who love and, and thrive on, on getting things done. Right now, we may all be working on the wrong thing, but we're doing a damn good job. <laughs> getting Climbing up the wrong ladder very fast is a... right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so again, it's so, so putting a diverse team together. Step one is to, is to find that diversity of thought and put them in the same room. But step two is equally important is to make them understand that you have different diversity of thought in that room and appreciate each other. Otherwise, they just start arguing. Right? They're like, you know, because they don't see the world the same way. So they start going at each other's throats and that's not healthy. So, but if you understand that, you know, why they are in the room and, and, and their thought is actually, you know, appreciated and, and uh, valued, then, and then, it, you know, becomes an equal contribution. Uh, and in any situation, you kind of go with a, you know, a, a, a different, depending on the situation, you go with a different, um, uh, what do we say, reason uh, of, of doing some stuff. So for example, we were in, um, and this was later in my career, we were trying to, um, buy a, a company in Brazil, right. <coughs> and, um, what we would do is, is you would have different people from the corporate and local, um, company on, on the round table and we'd kind of discuss the feasibility and then go around the table and vote, you know, do we want to buy the company? Or do we not want to buy the company? And it was one of those situations where we, you know, we had different personalities or different thought uh, leaders in the room. So we, we got one guy who was from uh, corporate acquisitions and he was very much like a strategic, you know, big picture thinker. Uh, then we had another guy who was very, very action oriented. I mean, you know, he, he was so ADD, you know, if you put him in a conference room, he couldn't sit more than 20 minutes. He had to get up and start pacing around and walking around. He was just like, he was like a, you know, a racehorse in the gate, chomping at the bit, just ready to come out and start running and, and doing it, right? Um, so again, different personalities and we went around the room um, and um, I voted down the acquisition. Everybody said, oh my God, I could do that. But look, it was really simple. We went around the table and every person that wanted to do this was um, 
you know, highly thought of, but the two guys that said no was the CEO and the CFO, or call it the general manager and a CFO of the local company. And, and I said, look, this makes absolutely no sense. You, you can't do an acquisition in Brazil and manage it from halfway across the world with, with corporation, you know, with the corporate team. It doesn't work. You know, if the two guys who are going to make this happen are the local GM and, and, and finance guy, if they're not on board, this is, this is, this is doomed to failure, <laughs> right? So made all the strategic sense in the world, right? Made, you know, the analytics were there, you know, financially it made sense, but it wasn't a priority for the lo you know, local guys. They, mm -hmm. they said they have, <coughs> excuse me, they had bigger, you know, not bigger, but different things that they, they were focusing on. And this was not a priority. So, you know, I, I voted it down, but, but it was one of those again, where you had diverse thoughts in the room Mm. um all you know equally if if you put a guy you know if you he had the same room with a bunch of different guys and they they were all you know basically you know guys like me action oriented that acquisition would have happened and it would have failed yeah because the local guys didn't want it right yeah no and and um you know, is, is the the word that sort of runs through all the you know the conversation with leadership itself and this particular thing around diversity is one of trust and um as you say you can have diversity of thought but if the trust isn't there then it ends up an argument as opposed to a discussion and there's nothing wrong in people having difference of opinions if the trust is there that it's all for the right reason and i i call it the my british background but i call it like the lennon mccartney effect so when John Lennon and Paul McCartney were in their heyday and actually got on. <laughs> uh, they could have huge rows over a song, but it wasn't a personal attack on each other. It was about what would make the song better. And they trusted each other to know that if you had a strong opinion, it was all for the right reason. And they could argue about a song and then be friends afterwards. It went downhill Absolutely. later on, but, <laughs> but uh, in, in heyday. And, and that's, that's what I always think of in those situations of, thinking differently but having enough trust to be able to have a decent argument but to get to the right result rather than a, a personal attack absolutely but, um, no thank you that's uh, really interesting um so just to get that timeline sorted out and, and our, our progress because we sort of yeah we dotted around a bit which is fine so um you know go, let's get my head around the time so after you got can from that big job you then started doing you became you became an expert in the sort of turnaround and and um and startup in the emerging market space you did that for quite a long period of time uh, 15 years i think another 10 15 years or something like that yeah yeah um so did that then shift again into sort of more close to what you're doing now and the, where john maxwell came in and these sort of things or what's the well so so what happened was uh, at that time uh, my my oldest daughter was already uh, in university in the U.S. My middle daughter was a senior year in high school, just about to enter a university. Uh, again, she was going to the U.S. And I was in, um, a, you know, a turnaround startup specialist in emerging markets. So I looked at, okay, how do I kind of leverage my brand equity, which is a turnaround specialist and startup specialist in emerging markets into the US market. <laughs> and the answer was <laughs> very difficult, right? There, <laughs> there was there, there were some jobs that were available to me, but um, it, it really wasn't at the level 
um, that I was, you know, accustomed to. So I was like, look, you know, I just makes no sense for me to take a desk job because it's not something I'm passionate about. It's not something I'm good at. So even if I take that job a year or two years from now, I'm going to quit or get fired one or the other because I'm just, you know, it, it makes no sense. So that's when I decided back in 2005 to start my own company. So I did, you know, a startup for myself on my own dime. And, and by the way, that was a big, huge learning lesson um, in, in all. So, so never underestimate the power of brand, right? So I, I worked for these large Fortune 100, 100 companies that the brand was well known. And look, if I wanted to hire somebody, uh, you know, we put an ad out and uh, or go to a headhunter or whatever. And, and, you know, I would get maybe a half dozen resumes of, of uh, you know, Stanford graduates, of Harvard graduates, of Oxford graduates, you know, all brilliant business minds. Right? They all wanted to work at that company. And I just happened to be in a position of leadership at that company, right? Um, then I start my own company. And, you know, there is no brand because it's a startup. And I try to get quality people to work for me. And they're rather like, who the hell are you? Why should we work for you? <laughs> I used to work for <laughs> yeah um and look that's a card you actually play a little bit because you got you want people to you know buy into you uh but it's it's that much more important for people to buy into you and, and to buy into your vision and the common vision when you're an entrepreneur or when you're a small company than you are a big brand because when you're a big brand you know people already assume that your company stands for something and uh it's much easier to get good talent you know you're a small startup you're an entrepreneur uh, you know, a lot of times you you have to get people who uh, maybe is not qualified as you are, or or you, you want to get, but you know they're at least they buy into you and and they're hardworking and you make do with that. So that was a that was a big learning curve for me that you know the power of brand and and I've started up a number of companies for Fortune One Hundreds, um, and uh, you know I, I I knew starting my own company would be a little bit different because I don't have the purse that you know a large company has to start up um but uh i i totally underestimated the um you know the the the, the brand uh and that draw about you know cost about getting customers about getting employees and all that stuff so and that it, takes a while it takes a it's, while it's, it's a bit of a catch-22 isn't it because you you need to um have the um build the credibility in the brand as you say in order to attract the right people but then you need to be doing the work in order to get the experience and the credibility so if you need one to get the other then where it's very much step by step little increment little increment until finally you get there so it's a a slog until it becomes easy i guess oh uh, you know we we we're about uh, three and a half four years into this company uh i'm part of in a um in a in a company and you know we started off with no office and uh, really a hot desk, you know, three guys. And then, um, you know, we, we hired one person, then we hired another person. And, you know, we, we found out, well, that person we hired is probably, you know, that's all we could afford right now, but that's not gonna, you know, take us to the next level. So then you make some swaps. So you kind of grow and you learn as you go. Uh, and, and knowingly, you may hire some folks that you know, are, are not there for the long term. Maybe they're only there for maybe a year or two to get you to the next level, right? And then, you know, you bring some more and the, and the bigger you are, the better you know, and the more quality people, you know, you can bring in. So that's just part of the, the growing process. Mm. And again, I think, it, well, I'd be treated to know what you're saying, but I'm, I'm guessing that 
in that process is uh, as long as you're open and honest either with yourself or, or with, and with the people preference. so if you know there's someone there that they're probably going to be there 18 months that's okay as long as everyone kind of knows what the score is yeah yeah it's when when you try and hide things and maybe trying to convince yourself that they're going to be long-term employees you're going to get into trouble or whatever it might be well you, you you have to you have to be honest with your people and you have to be you know treat people with respect uh, you know one of the things from day one with that was okay this is our culture this is our values this is our vision and um you know what do you think about that uh, do you buy in do you not buy in uh, and then what happens is you know as long as you still live the same culture you still live the same vision uh, people realize at a certain stage um that they're you know they're not cut out for that anymore Right there, they realize that okay, I, I can't, I can't function, uh, and I can't excel in this environment, right? Um, and maybe they didn't know that you know a year ago or or a year and a half ago. Um, and then as as company owners, you know, the other thing you say is okay, well, you know, we hired you as a quote unquote office manager, and you had like eight different things you're doing, but now we got into this to the stage where it's physically impossible for you to do all eight. So we're going to scale you back to three and we're going to hand off, you know, the other five to one person or to two, two people. So all those, you know, generic responsibilities you had uh, because we could only afford one person and we didn't have that many transactions or that much business to really need three people. Now we're going to divide that amongst three people. And you're still here, still loyal. We still love you. Um, you just have less responsibilities now than you did a year and a half ago. I right, saw so just, uh, you know, grow and you learn and you just grow, learn and adjust. Right? Um, and then, you know, some people say, okay, it's the company's too big and, you know, it's not just, and you see it all the time with startups, you know, you see startups and then, you know, they get into angel funding. Uh, and then, you know, right during the time that you get past angel funding and you get some, you know, second read, you know, round B of funding, or maybe you're even going to a venture capitalist. That's when founders get squeezed out, mm. right? Because the the money comes in, they go, well, I think you had a great idea. You you took it to a certain level, but you just we don't believe that you can lead a you know a fifty or hundred million dollar organization anymore. Mm. So now we're gonna we're, we're gonna bring somebody else that that we believe is mature and can do that. Mm. It just sort of taps in again to your sort of first question, knowing who you are. Yeah. You know, if you're the sort of person that can get things started and get to a certain point, then there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Don't try and be someone that you're not. No, no. So, so just to be clear, what what the your current business? Who, who what is what is it you're doing and who you're doing it for? So I, I've got uh, two businesses. I've got you know, obviously, I've got the the consulting business that that really is. Um, uh, built on on the book, uh, which is C-Suite and Beyond, and and those key principles. And I do workshops. Um, you know, some you know, if they, somebody needs a keynote speaker for a sales team, you know, a company meeting or a sales meeting or something. Uh, there's a couple of topics that I, you know, it's a canned you know topic that I can come in and find uh, fine tune for their particular you know needs, their particular audience. Uh, workshops, same thing, built on those four um, four keys. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, like, for example, I went to this, this bank and they wanted me to help with their strategic growth plan. It was a, it was a little boutique bank and, you know, I kind of sat down and started doing the analysis of how I can help. And, um, 
again, those had agendas. We were kind of going through the strategic plan. And um, about halfway through, I, I you know, sat down with the, the gentleman who invited me. I said, look, you don't have a strategic plan problem. You got a people problem. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you got a bunch of analytical guys in the room. And doesn't matter what project you're going to put on there. They're going to analyze the hell out of it and they're going to kill it. You're never going to grow with this team. You got to put together a diverse team because they're just analysis paralysis. They're analyzing through everything and kind of makes sense because you're in a financial industry. So you, you get a lot of those people in a room. But I said, you know, you know, you don't have a strategic growth problem. You got a people problem until, until you switch the team up. You're not growing because they're killing everything. Right. So that's kind of an example of, of using a book, using those four principles um, to work with a company, you know, whether it's in a workshop uh, where you're trying to solve a specific problem. Um, and um, yeah, so that's, that's one company. Um, and then the other company is like I, I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm partners in this uh, basically a home remodeling company uh, down in Southern California. And there's just, uh, there's, you know, a lot of real estate valuations in, in Southern California. So a lot of people have equity in their homes and they want to fix them. So we put together a fairly decent sized organization. We've doubled in size every year. We're going to double in size again this year as well. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a fun business and it allows me to live in San Diego. <laughs> so, what, what, how much, how actively involved are you in that? Are you sort of taking leadership role in that or are you, you using different skills and resources? What's your relationship with that? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I would say, yeah, it's a leadership role. It's, it's again, making sure the right people in the right, you know, right people in the right room. So we have the right people on our teams. Uh, making sure they're doing the right thing, uh, making sure that, you know, the budget makes sense, make sure, you know, planning makes sense, make sure nobody's losing money, but making money, I mean, you know, all, all the things you need to run a business. <laughs> and um, what do you see for the future? I mean, you mentioned earlier on, you're at the, uh, can't remember what your word was, with the tail end of your career, and I don't believe that for a moment, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Maybe past um, halfway, I'll give you that, but. I, I don't know what the future brings. If, if you asked me five years ago, if I would be in the home remodeling business in San Diego, I would have said, what are you nuts? Right. Um, so again, keeping an open mind, um, using that vision statement, does it honor God? And is it a leadership role? Uh, if the answer is yes, then I take a look at it. Uh, I may do it. If the answer is no, then I don't do it. You know, definitely don't do it. Right. So, you know, that's what's the power of the vision statement. I'm not going to compromise who I am and what I'm all about. Um, and if that fits a particular criteria, then, you know, yeah, mm. I'd love to. I love to uh, not would love to, but I will uh, expand the book uh, the, the way I wrote it. It's more like a helicopter view. Yeah. Uh, so that allows me to do a deep dive into each one of those principles and, and really formulate a book on on one of those principles so i probably have four more five five more books in me um with the with the corresponding workbook to go with it obviously yeah yeah um but but again it's one of those where is it important and it's not you know it, it's it's not urgent right now but it's important so it, it's in the back of my mind i'm dabbling with it um I, I need a little bit more inspiration when i when i wrote this first book i had a lot of inspiration and literally i would take like you know, three, four hours at a time, just, you know, writing, uh, take a whole weekend and writing. So I'm, uh, I'm a little bit lazy about it. So I need to get my, uh, I need to get my acting gear and 
and, and start you know, well, like you said before, to paper. Or, or, or comparing sort of similar to what you said before, you know, laziness, energy, it's just another resource and it's a priority yeah. thing, isn't it? So yeah. as you just said there, you haven't got the inspiration for it. So that's what you need to do first is sit with it and think, well, why do you want to do it? Do you want to do yeah. it? That's where you want to start with. <laughs> And then, well, if, I, I, I want to do it because, you know, what I did, the, 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 the book I did the first time is really just to, um, uh, I, again, uh, I'm passionate about, you know, adding value to people and making people better. And I know as an individual uh, growing up, uh, I read books and, and I never met these individuals. You know, I, I, I never met Jack Welch and uh, I read two of his books and, and really helped me think a certain way. I um, I loved, you know, 9-11, Rudy Giuliani, uh, leadership. I, I loved that book. Uh, I actually met Rudy when I was running for president. Um, and uh, I was at a fundraiser for him. So I did shake hands with him. I got a picture of Rudy. But, um, you know, I read his book. And uh, it kind of gave me a, a window into to his world. Uh, and I adapted some of that. So, for example, Rudy, you know, in his book, he talks about sitting down every Monday morning with his leadership team. And uh, then, you know, after I read that book, I did that every Monday morning. I sat down with my leadership tip for four hours uh, and really, you know, looked at last week's events, this week's events, make sure we're still on t target to do whatever we're doing that week. If there were any complications, competitive actions, whatever from the, the previous week, we discussed that. So every Monday morning for four hours, me and my leadership team met. Uh, and that came because I read Rudy's book. Mm. So you never know what you learn when you read books. Uh, that's why I wrote this book. And, and maybe somebody reads it and they maybe learn something and make their life better. Absolutely. Now, yeah, well, I look forward to uh, seeing where, where that goes, what comes out. Um, so um, bringing things to a close, you touched on a, a few things there, but um, let's just see if we can bring it together in one nice little concise thing. And I'll ask you the question that uh, everyone gets asked on the podcast. Uh, so, uh, Tom, uh, what is it that makes your bits tingle? <laughs> I, like I said, I, lo I love the, the British terminology. Uh, <laughs> but look, I, I, at the expense of repeating myself, I'm going to repeat myself. You know, you know, why do I get out of bed every morning? Uh, because I'm passionate about something and I'm good at something. Um, you know, it's getting back into those, you know, answering those three questions to say who you are, what are you passionate about, and what are you good at? Uh, and if you got a clear answer for that, you want to get up every morning. You know, you, you're excited about the morning. Uh, you're excited about what you're going to be doing that day. I mean, you know, the I couldn't wait until January 6th, until the first Monday in the new year, to start kicking things off about, you know, at, at, obviously at work, because I was passionate about it. And, uh, you know, I kind of sat on the sidelines during the holidays for a week and a half or two weeks. Had a great time with my kids. They flew in, my, you know, my uh, spent time with the family. So... And I had a wonderful time, but, you know, I was, I was passionate about doing that stuff. So, uh, you know, find your passion, find what you're good at. Uh, make sure you're honest with yourself. You know, some people think they are good at something, but maybe they're not. So, you know, again, you know, get some feedback. Are you really good at what you think you're good at? Um, and, uh, you know, know who you are. So, look, you know, make sure your character matches with your reputation. And if, if you got that lined up. I think you'll you'll be happy to get up every morning and and it's it doesn't confine you to career it doesn't confine you to a job it doesn't confine you to 
a social situation, um, you know, or, or, or however you define it, it's, it's just, it works in all parts of life. Mm, absolutely. No, I love the, uh, you say that it's that um, state of, you say, importance of knowing who you are, being happy where you are, having that general vision and direction that you're going in, and the rest is just it's choice then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolute choice, and uh, uh, you, you can make sure you enjoy every day. Um, thank you, Ty. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, um, see, obviously the book's called C-Suite and Beyond, uh, Four Keys to Leadership Success um but um, where else should they find you look for you if they want to find more about what you're up to uh obviously yeah you go to amazon bars and noble any online retail you'll find the book and then you can kind of backtrack me uh the the beauty and the curse of my last name is is uh the curse it's nobody can pronounce it <laughs> uh it's uh my last name is caresti that's k-e-r-e-s-z-t-i and the nice thing about it is it's very unique. If, if you Google that name, you'll find my sister and my three daughters. <laughs> um, so so uh, LinkedIn, if you type in Caresti, you're going to only find me or my daughter or my, I don't think my name is on LinkedIn, but my daughter and my, you know, my daughters are, I'm there. Instagram, you'll find my daughter and me. Um, and, you're the one with, and you're the one with the mustache, yeah? Yeah, I'm the one with the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's easy to track me down. Uh, LinkedIn is the easiest. I also, you know, just do uh, caresti.com. That's my website. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I have a pretty much of a, you know, open door policy. Hey, you know, Tom, I, I'd love to run an idea by you. You know, we'll jump on a Zoom call for 15 minutes. Uh, it doesn't cost you a penny. And, and if I can help you, I'm happy to do so. And if I can't, I'll be just honest to say, look, it, you know, this is not a good fit for us. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you very much. And I'll put all those, that information in the show notes, obviously, for everybody. But again, thanks very much. It's been great little points. I love the, that distinction of uh, authority and leadership. Well, that was really good. Um, the uh, treating business as a family and actually applying similar tactics to both. There's, there's no real disconnect between the two. We've got to, you know, we're the same in, in all camps. So why, why be different? And uh, uh, and and that you know discussion around the diversity of thought not just diversity for diversity's sake but actually just bringing different ways of thinking bring stuff through it's some really good stuff to to, to that, again as you said applicable to it doesn't matter if you're a one-man band or, or or a billion pound business these things are applicable throughout so um uh, wise words that everybody can take on board so uh been an absolute pleasure having you on tom thank you so much for coming on and uh wish you all the best for the future and maybe the next four or five books that come out rolling out <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, thanks for having our great questions. Um, you know, whatever two people have a great dialogue and a discussion, you know that uh, you're a, a, a gracious host and a, and a fun host and, you know, bring out the best in your uh, guests. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for coming on. All right. Enjoy. These podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers. I want you to think about what's been said, what's come up and how you might apply that to your own situation. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast and, of course, share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle.